Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in and checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. You're listening to episode 12, and today we're going to talk about transitions. So I'm going to ask a question to all of you. Can you remember a time in your life when you had a conversation with someone that changed kind of like everything for you? Uh, I don't mean like the, you know, someone died or I'm pregnant conversation, but a conversation that literally just blows your mind and you walk away from it just like, just have no idea what's going on. Um, I've been pretty fortunate or maybe unfortunate, I think fortunate to have had a few of these conversations in my life and I walk away from the conversation just rethinking any path or plan or anything that I may have had happening in my life. It just makes me stop and think exactly what I'm doing. So right after I'd finished high school, I had this plan. We all have a plan, at least think we do. Uh, My plan was to go to community college for two years and get the basics out of the way, take all my math, English, all that stuff, and then save some money and eventually head to a four-year college. So around this time, like I was, I just left the hardware store and I was working at RPS at the time, which is Roadway Package System. While I was working there, this company actually was bought out by FedEx and eventually became FedEx. And I don't remember exactly how I found out about this job, but I remember being super, super stoked because they started out at like $9 an hour. And in Flint, like I wasn't finding anything around $9 an hour. So for me, it was like $3 more and I was making a hardware store. And here's the kind of kicker. So for me to find and acquire this newfound fortune that I was super excited about, um, the closest job to me was 30 miles away in Pontiac through lots of construction and traffic. And it definitely wasn't a deal breaker. Um, There's lots of things that are deal breakers for jobs, but Uh, travel wasn't one of them at the time. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong, it sucked. But eventually, once I started working there, uh, I found some other dudes around the area that we could carpool with. And so it kind of helped cut things down on the the gas side of things. And so, and also I had a truck at the time. So I didn't end up having to drive a lot. That's just me and one other dude. So I remember the first day, it's funny, I remember these these things pop in your head when when you're kind of thinking about, um, you know, you're reminiscing about these things that have happened, you know, years and years ago, and it spawns this other thought and spawns this other thought. And uh, this is just kind of how it goes. This is the, the, the nature of the Hustle the Most podcast, I guess. So I remember my first day actually walking in this place for yet another orientation. And we talked about some orientations in the last couple episodes. And I basically sat through three hours of videos that go through things like work ethics and, uh, you know, HR stuff and a lot of stuff on workplace safety. Like this place was pretty dangerous, lots of stairs and moving belts and lifting heavy stuff. So lots of, you know, lift with your knees, not your back, never walking the belt, stuff like that. And these safety videos are all, they're all pretty stark, right? Um, I mean, we've seen them in movies. We've probably seen them in person and they're all pretty stark and pretty heartless. And they do emphasize one thing. There was one common thread, this whole thing, which was, uh, never walk on a moving belt. This place has belts going all over it into trailers, out of trucks, down the line. It was crazy. And over and over again, it was, don't walk on the belt. Never walk on a moving belt. If the belt is moving, never walk on it. Please, for your safety, stop all belts before walking on them. This was the safety message over and over and over again. And this, it makes sense, right? You don't walk on a belt. You fall down. You get hurt. You get sucked in. These belts eventually come together where two belts come together. And uh, it's it's bad scene. So... I finished with my videos and I asked the girl at the desk to grab the boss for me. His name was Jim. I was like, hey, can you go grab Jim for me? 
She's like, oh, I'll just take you out there because he was out in the warehouse. So sounds good to me. We walked out there and we walked through the warehouse at the far side where all the packages were kind of flowing into the trailers. And we walked up these stairs. There was actually an angled belt that went parallel to the stairs. It had a bunch of packages on it. And once we got to the top of the stairs, there was a long belt that actually had three other belts kind of parting off it that went to different trailers. And we walked up the stairs and Jim, who was my new boss, was standing on the very far side in the farthest belt. And she said, okay, he's over there. And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, how do I get over there? And she looked me right in my face. She's like, walk on the belt. <laughs> I, I just laughed. And I was like, okay, I jumped on the belt and I walked over there and, and, and he was standing there and he was just like, it wasn't a big deal to him. Wasn't a big deal to them. It's so funny. Like spent so many hours watching these videos where they talk about, don't do this. Don't do this. First thing a person says is, that's how you get there. Like that's how you travel in this place. You walk on the belt. So it's pretty, pretty bananas, pretty silly. But I think we all have a lot of those things at our workplace that just don't make any sense, but this is kind of how it goes. Uh, this one was clearly breaking the rules, any kind of like OSHA or safety workplace violations all over the place. Um, but it was pretty cool. I, I worked at that location for about a year or so and working there was actually really awesome. So eventually I recruited a handful of friends uh, to work there from the Flint area. We kind of took over that place. There was like seven or eight of us by the time I had left and it was just awesome. We, we all rode down there together and went out to eat together afterwards sometimes. And it was just cool, man. It was a cool vibe. We had a lot of fun down there. It was pretty cool. So around this time, I was still going to community college, commuting down to work afterwards, uh, playing shows with my band Spit. And I had just finished up probably my second year at Mott Community College. So I was looking forward to the future. And I actually applied at a couple different schools, one of them being Eastern Michigan University. And I was accepted. So I was actually going to head to the lovely city of Ypsilanti, Michigan to go to school, which is just down, not too far down the street from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. So if you're familiar with the area, it's funny, U of M is actually just down the road from Eastern Michigan University, about 10 minutes. And people that go to U of M, they get all pumped, they get excited, they go to college, they party too much, and they potentially end up failing out of U of M. So then they move it on down the road to Eastern Michigan, which has much lower standards for getting in and their academic probation. And they're either able to get it back up and go back or they eventually end up quitting or eventually graduating from Eastern Michigan. So, you know, people say, you know, life's all about the journey. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And I definitely think it sounds really cliche to say that, but I think there's definitely some truth to it. And I think the story will kind of help uh, bring light to some of that. So. Like sometimes you have to take a leap of faith and just follow your heart, follow your dreams, and whatever comes on the other end, it just, it just comes. It just happens. So we talked earlier about those conversations that changed the game. So my band Spit was playing this show at a club in Westland, Michigan, which is kind of down toward Detroit, called Pharaohs. And this is a club that a lot of hardcore bands, a lot of punk bands were playing at the time, and and we were actually playing there with the band Earthmover. We talked a little bit about them before. And in the, in the earlier episodes, they're a band from Detroit. We were super stoked on them. We really looked up to them. They were older than us and, and more established. And they were just a really good band. And, and kind of spit was kind of on our way out. We had done a bunch of stuff and recorded some records and played some shows. But um, I think dudes were kind of over playing hardcore and really wanted to do something a little different. So anyway, uh, we're at the show. and. Two of the dudes from Earthmover had come up to me and asked to like talk to me. And I walked over 
them and we we're kind of sitting by this pool table talking and they started telling me that they had all these shows coming up and potential tours, maybe going to Europe to play shows and their current drummer was bowing out. And I guess they all talked about it and, and had thought through it. And they thought I was the only guy that they knew that could take over the duties and kind of do it justice. So, I mean, what an amazing feeling to have someone, you know, in a great band that I looked up to, you know, just all of a sudden asking me to be one of them and enjoying their band. And like my whole path and perspective was just kind of blown up. Um, you know, these things don't, don't come about very often and don't happen very often. So when they do, it's, it's, it's very strange, right? You'd have to recognize it. And like, what do you do? So I remember coming back to our merch table and the guys from Spit were like, what do they want? You know? And I'm, and like, they asked me to be their drummer and they asked me to drum for Earthmover. And I told them I would do it. It was crazy. Like the guys in my band, like their reaction was like super stoked. Like they were like, that's awesome. That's crazy. Like super, whoa, no way. And it's, it's funny because they, not one of them was like, what about spit? Like, you know, they were kind of all like, okay, this is probably going to be done soon. Spit kind of ran its course, but really cool of them to like not be selfish and, and think about, you know, what, what about them? But they're super excited for me. So those are, those are definitely true friends. And I started practicing with Earthmover a few weeks later and I was doing double duty um, until spit had kind of finished doing the shows that we had done. We had a few shows booked kind of went and played those and just practiced and then played spit shows. I started playing shows with Earthmover that summer and we were kind of playing out all over the place. Like it was awesome. We did like shows in Detroit and Chicago and Dayton and Buffalo and a bunch of other places. And it was like weekend shows, you know, we would drive out, play the show, drive home. And at the end of the summer, we did our first real tour. It was like a two week tour uh, on the East coast. And we did it with this awesome band from North Carolina called Catharsis. They were like these kind of no gods, no masters, holy terror type band and just total rippers. And these guys are all still my friends today, which is, which is awesome. Just an amazing, amazing group of dudes. So let me tell you real quick what being in a touring hardcore punk band is really all about. And it's really all about waiting. Um, I remember telling my dad once about, uh, he was talking to me about how he wished he could go on the road with me for a while. And he's like, wouldn't that be cool, man? And and I said, Dad, you would absolutely hate it. He's like, he's like, why, why would I hate it? Like, you get to go to all these places. You get to see the world. I said, yeah, it's true. But here's what I really get to do. And I was like, you know, we drive in our van trailer or bus or whatever it is. We get to the show. Say it's like 9 a.m. And we're all awake. And we wait until someone gets to the club to let us in so we can load in. Sometimes maybe it's at noon. Maybe it's at 5. Kind of depends on the tour and the size of the tour and size of the venue. and kind of how the club operates. But um, so we get to the club, we load in our gear. Uh, we waited for, you know, a handful of hours already. We load, we wait for our people to show up to do sound check. We do set up and do sound check. Maybe we go eat, explore around town a little bit. And then we're waiting for the doors to open. And then we wait for our time slot. So we maybe play like 30 to 55 minutes or so. Then break down our gear and load it out and wait for the show to end. Then when the show ends, we either head to a hotel or to a friend's house, or if the show is far away, then we have to get in the van or get on the bus and then drive to the next show and do it all over again. So in an average day, you probably spend, I don't know, 10 to 15 hours waiting, just waiting to play, maybe waiting to eat, sometimes waiting to get in, sometimes waiting to leave, sometimes waiting for bus call, whatever it is. A lot of time waiting. So don't get me wrong, like it's fun. 
and it's exciting and but it's not for everyone so it's funny once i walked through this with my dad he was like no way he's like i would go crazy doing all that waiting sounds like you guys just sit around all the time you guys could get jobs like <laughs> he just didn't he wasn't into it he didn't get it he wasn't into it at all so it's pretty funny being in a touring band is tough because it's a lot of people in a small space that are together for extremely long periods of time and basically live with these people day in and day out and sometimes it's amazing other times it's tough and often you experience all of the possible emotions that you could experience all in the same day sometimes in the same like five hours even though at the time i was doing earth mover and we started doing a little touring and playing shows we still weren't like a full-time band like we all had jobs still and a couple of us were in school and i still ended up moving down to ipsy uh, and going to college at Eastern. This was a total weird and kind of blind experience for me. So this is my first time moving away from home, getting an apartment. I enrolled in the marketing program at Eastern, which I was doing at Mott College. But I never really met with anyone. Never met with an advisor. Never met with like a registrar's office. I did all my stuff online. And then I just registered for my classes through their phone system. And it was it. I registered for classes that were under the marketing umbrella, I think. And I just really had no solid plan. So I was pretty much flying solo on this one. I mean, my dad was around, but he wasn't really involved in my college experience so much. He didn't really have much interest in helping to guide me through that experience. Like he had never really went through it. He went to a community college the same one that I went to. It was much different then than it even was for him back in the day. So I remember telling him I was going to college and he was like, how are you going to afford that? And, and opposed to something like, oh, like, how can I help? How can we do it? You know? Um, I was on my own doing that kind of stuff, so which is fine. That wasn't his thing, and you know I figured it out for the most part. But I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, it's it's you know you're flying blind and and just just hoping for the best. So you know, there was a lot of transitioning happening in my life at that time. And I mean, I had a somewhat new band, moved to my first apartment, new roommate, now going to to a new school. Uh, I transferred from Pontiac FedEx location to the Detroit location, so I had a new job with all new people. Like, it's funny looking back at it because, like, you know, it was just a lot of firsts. I mean, we talk about, you know, the different firsts that we've had. This was just a lot of firsts that were happening, and they were happening all at once. So it was a little bit chaotic, but, you know, the job was fine. Like, I was familiar with that. Um, school was also also fine. A little different because the new school, but, you know, the band was familiar territory. But I think the thing that was probably the most odd first for me was that I now had my own apartment. And I live with a roommate. <laughs> We've all had roommates over the years, I'm sure, that are awesome, amazing, fun, horrible, wretched, gross, like whatever it is, whatever adjective it is used to describe them. You know, we've all had them. And some of them are all in the same, right? So I had met this dude named Phil a year or so earlier. And he was a piercer. And he made and sold body jewelry at shows. And, and he had a piercing studio at his house. And the first time I ever met him was Spit and Earthmover were playing a house show at the Earthmover house, which was in like Brightmoor, Detroit area, like Telegraph, Five Mile, pretty sketchy part of town uh, at the time. And I had my ears stretched to like a six gauge with some crappy kind of makeshift earrings. And at the time, like body jewelry was really hard to find and not a lot of places carried it. When they did carry it, it was really, really expensive. So... I see this dude, Phil, at the show, and I didn't know who he was. He sets up this kind of card table, um, like right into the entrance of the living room, uh, almost like a, like a retail table, kind of. 
and he's got all of this body jewelry that he kind of spills out on the table. He's got these little cases that have the different rings and the different ring sizes in them, and he's selling them at the show, and he pulls out a Sharpie, writes down prices, and puts them next to the rings, and I remember our friend Joe Harris was with us at the time, and he was way into body jewelry and tattoos and stuff, and when Phil put the prices down, we both kind of looked at each other, and we're like, whoa, like, so cheap, and we started scrambling for cash between us, so we could try to, like, take home as much of stuff as we could, and I think I bought two rings from him for, like, 24 bucks. Any shop that you would go to where you could find this stuff, that would have been, like, 50 or 60 bucks a ring, so it was pretty awesome for us to be able to get the good score, so that night, we actually got home, and... <laughs> Joe and I were trying to put these rings in my ears. So it was actually awesome and kind of scary at the same time. Um, so these captive bead rings are basically these pieces of steel that are bent and formed and polished. So it's basically a ring, and there'll be a little section of it missing, and then you'll see some sort of bead that goes in it and it holds it all together. So the, uh, the bead at the time, I think people were using hematite. was one of the beads that people put in the middle, and it seems easy enough, you know, but these beads sit between this ring, which means you actually have to pull apart the steel ring to get the bead out. Uh, and it's because it's the pressure that actually holds it in. So basically flex them a little bit and get the bead in and out. <laughs> they actually make tools for this. They're called snap ring pliers. It's very common. However, uh, when it's three o'clock in the morning and you've just come home from the rock show and you got your new earrings and your friends are there and you want to put them in your ears, like you have to improvise kind of. So we tried using pliers and opening the ring and to get the beat out and that just wasn't happening i mean this this is you know six gauge surgical stainless steel and it wasn't moving with our, our little pliers that we had so we moved to plan b which was we well plan b should have been wait till morning go to the hardware store get the right tool but for us it was plan b was you know it was all about leverage so we just needed more leverage how are we going to get more leverage i remember having the bead in my hand we were able to get it out and so i had the bead in my hand and Joe had a pair of pliers, and we had taken two of my drum stand pieces and put one of each of the handles in the drum stand. So he was able to hold it at the end and pull on it, and this gave us more leverage. It's like a, like a breaker bar, crowbar. Um, we actually use this to get the beat out. So once I put the earring in my ear, I remember it being kind of sketchy because you have this guy next to me with these long pliers and he's probably two feet away from me because he's got these big drum stands in his hand he's trying to pull on them pliers are kind of stuck to my ear but kind of jab me inside of the face and i had this bead in my hand and i was trying to push it into the hole yeah it was a hole it was a mess there was a little bit of blood uh it was pretty gross but eventually it all worked out and we got these things in my ears it's probably like five o'clock in the morning uh it was good it was good anyway so the guy that sold me the jewelry at the house show was called Vegan Phil, that's what they called him. And he was actually the first vegan I had ever met. And he was actually a painting major at Eastern. And I didn't know this at the time. We just thought he was some dude selling a body jewelry at the show. So uh, he had actually had a few different piercing studios and we kind of kept in touch. And I'd taken a few friends down to wherever he was piercing at the time to get stuff done. And, and uh, we kind of became friends through that process. And uh, he's actually one of my good friends still to this day. And and uh, in the early days, even to, I guess even today, sometimes I don't understand him, but in the early days, I definitely didn't understand him because he's definitely a new kind of person to me. Uh, he was pretty artsy, and I didn't really understand artsy kids. Definitely, it's not something that I really knew much about. 
And so it, it's funny. If you know Phil and I, you have probably heard the story of our first day of school together. Now that we're roommates, we're going to go to school together. And so I'll just real quick, I'll just indulge you. So my first day Eastern, he, he comes out of his bedroom and I'm sitting on the couch eating some cereal. And he was like, hey, you want to walk to school together? And school's probably like half mile from, uh, from us. And so it was nice out. I'm like, yep, we're going to walk together. It sounds good. So we went to our rooms, get ready for school. You know, I put on what I thought was a fairly normal outfit. Uh, I had on jeans and a t-shirt and a hat. I had my backpack on. And I was ready to go. And this dude comes out with this outfit on that just absolutely floored me. Uh, dude is wearing one white airwalk shoe, one silver airwalk shoe, a pair of brown cutoff cargo shorts with paint all over them, uh, a dyed purple v-neck t-shirt with a, a patch kind of in the middle of it, uh, a cutoff shirt sleeve or a headband, and to top it all off, he was wearing a suit coat over top of all this. And I remember being like, where are you going with this outfit on? He was like, I'm walking to school. And I was like, not with me or not. Like, I just I was like, what, what am I going to walk down? What's going on here? Like, I just had no idea. Almost thought it was a joke. But, uh, you know, we did walk to school and it was fine. I'll tell you to this day, he still dresses that way. And I got to applaud him, man. Because you know, applaud him for knowing who he was back then and who he is now. And he just owns it like it's nobody's business. So it's funny if you actually fast forward a handful of years later, he ended up becoming a tenured professor of um, metal and jewelry at the, an art school in Grand Rapids. And I eventually enrolled in that school and got a BFA in industrial design. And he was one of my professors for a handful of classes. So it was, it was, it was pretty awesome. We got to like hang out. I feel like I could tell tour stories and Phil and West stories for days, but I definitely think we'll have to save them. Maybe I can get him to come in on an episode and, and talk with me about that time. We can relive that story together and he will probably not see the humor in it, nor will he see something wrong with it. But that's why we're going to talk about it. So it's going to be awesome. Uh, so let's jump into real quick what I've learned from these crazy experiences. So I learned that people are willing to travel and change career paths for just the smallest amount of money. Now, granted, I was 18 when I, when I jumped from hardware store life to, to FedEx, but it was $3 more. And $3 more an hour, to me, was worth driving 30 miles. And knowing full well that I wasn't going to make the kind of money where I was living in Flint, I think that there are a lot of reasons why people move industries. I mean, money, culture, commute distance, workload, stuff like that. I think the older you get and the more years that you have under your belt, that equation kind of changes based on what's happening in your life. Maybe it's kids, maybe it's location, maybe it's friends that you've made, um, maybe the culture is awesome. Whatever it is, that equation definitely changes as you get older. Uh, I learned that sometimes you kind of have to take a leap and just do something that may be out of your comfort zone to get where you want to be. I think I've talked about this in a handful of other episodes. And I mean, I said yes to joining a band that I liked kind of on a spur of a moment. I had no idea the places that it would take me and the doors that would open for me. And it was like I said yes, and then I just had to figure it out kind of like as I, as I went. I had to figure it out along the way. If you don't take a chance, you will never know what might have been. I mean, it sounds kind of cliche and kind of silly, but I'm sure that, that there have been a lot of opportunities that you've missed out on, that I've missed out on, because you just didn't have, the, at the time, 
whatever information you needed to, to say yes. You just said no, you overthought it, you overthought the potential outcomes, whatever it was. Um, either way, sometimes you just have to say yes and go for it and just figure it out along the way. I think the last thing I really want to touch on is how I dealt with all these transitions at once. There's always a common thread in every story. For me, it was doing everything at once, splitting my time and trying to do everything all the time. I didn't spend a lot of time sitting around and thinking. I spent my time doing everything, playing in a band, going to school, working full time, playing shows on the weekends. I was pretty much busy all the time, always doing something, always on the go, putting irons in the fire, whatever it was. I guess even back then, I was always trying to hustle the most. What do you do to hustle the most? We're going to talk about that on the next one. As always, thank you so much for listening. This is a Hustle the Most podcast. This was episode 12. Check out more stories, photos, and connect with me, the blog site, hustlethemost.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes, give us a like, give us a share, give us a review, tell a friend. Always appreciated. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you on the next one.